Hey everybody, welcome back to the Philcraft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today I got a special co-host in the house, Kevin Owens. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Hey Mike, what's going on? <laughs> oh, you were all hype a minute ago. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So Kevin is a good buddy of mine um, in special operations, and this is another episode of the Tactical Review Podcast. It's been a while. It's been a couple of podcasts since we've done the Tactical Review Podcast, and I wanted to do one since um, a good friend of ours, Gina, was in California, and she basically got uh, denied access to buying ammo for a training course that she was going to in the great old state of California. And so that just kicked it off. And I was like, you know what? I got enough things to talk about with the Tactical Review Podcast. And so we need to cover that and much, much more. If you guys don't know what the Tactical Review Podcast, it's a review of all the natural man-made disasters since the last time we talked, talking about you know ways to deal with tactics, techniques, and procedures, whether it's countering tactics uh, whether it's just better practices and ways to deal with uh, natural and man-made disasters. But if you understand tactics, you understand they always change. And so if we want to stay ahead of them, we got to talk about them as they happen um, so we don't get complacent. And so Kevin's a, a good buddy of mine, special operations sniper, has been had a, a long uh, career in special operations, both in uh, uh, Ireland as well as the United States. And he's my guest on here because I want to get different perspectives. I want to get different perspectives of experiences and expertise uh, who might lend a different uh, point of view that might uh, benefit you as well. So let's kick straight into the podcast. Kevin, um, you know, for people who are listening to this podcast, can you give a little bit about your background? I know you have a pretty long career field and there's things I discover about you every single day. Um, just, just tell people about like your background, where you started and kind of where you're at now. Okay, yeah, I uh, I was born and grew up in Ireland, lived in Ireland until I was 25, and then came to the States with a green card. But while I was in Ireland, I joined the Army when I was 18, and I spent two years patrolling the border in Northern Ireland, uh, checkpoint searches, patrols, all that kind of stuff. And then I went to special operations, and when I was in a counter-terrorist unit, the, the Tier 1 counter-terrorist unit in Ireland, for about five years. And then I, then I got out, and I... Uh, I did a few things, um, did some contract work, and then I, I got a green card to come to the States. I uh, came to the States, joined the Army with a green card, and then after I got my citizenship, spent a couple of years in the infantry. After I got my uh, green card, I was able to go to special operations, went to SF. Uh, U.S. Army, your Green Beret. Uh, yeah, yeah, U.S. Army, Green Beret, and uh, deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq multiple times. And me and you, we ended up on the same team for a couple of years, and uh, we did a lot of combat ops together. And um, it kind of led me to where I am now. Yeah, so, you know, where you're at now is in a kind of a transition thing, but we don't have to go into too much detail. But I will tell you from understanding kind of Kevin's background, Kevin is uh, one of the subject matter experts in sniper and long gun operations and the implementation of like that technical skill sets uh, into operations on the battlefield and has done a lot for... Uh, whether it's research and development and testing and evaluation, but implementing new TTPs into the U.S. military and specifically special operations. So it's really cool to have you on the podcast, man. And so th the first thing, you know, we were talking about this morning, California, and, you know, it's called it's called uh, Pr Proposition 63. And what it is is essentially a phased way of um, – you know, completely outsourcing, um, I mean, outing and getting rid of uh, am ammunition in the state of California. They started with the guns, obviously, 
and 63% of California voters say the background checks will prevent people prohibited from buying ammo doing so. And then they put in a new law, which is which is known as uh, 60, Prop 63 provision, which just came effective in July, actually uh, July 1, where they changed some of the laws. And I'll, I'll line out some of those pinpointed laws, and I want to kind of get your opinion on this. California law will now require a background check for ammunition purchases. You know, outside of the the weapon system, now just to buy ammunition, uh, you have to get a background check. Ammo sellers will have to report purchases to California Department of Justice. So, you know, whether you believe in the overreach or not, which I do, California DOJ um, have to all ammo sellers in the state of California have to report that. Also, in addition to that, ammunition purchasers in California um, must report any lost or stolen ammunition within 48 hours. So if you're a victim of, um, you know, somebody breaks in your car or steals your gun in the center console, which is unlikely in California unless you're a criminal, um, and they steal ammunition, you have to report that within 48 hours. Or you're um, potentially going to get fined uh, up to $1,000. The California Department of Justice must report individuals prohibited from owning guns to federal law enforcement if they try to make an illegal purchase, which is pretty new. I mean, you should go, you show up at a gun store, you don't know that you're not allowed to purchase a gun, and then they report you. Um, they report it to DOJ, and I'm assuming they'll investigate you, which is, I mean, if if you know you're on the list, you're not going to show up at a legal, you know, in a store for a legal purchase of a gun. Owning large capacity mags is prohibited. And sellers who don't comply face criminal charges of $1,000. Now, the issue that our friend Gina ran into is she went to California. She went to purchase ammunition with a driver's license from California. And then she got denied. And she doesn't know the reason why. And they won't tell her why. And Kevin, you know, when you were in Ireland, and there's a whole bunch of geopolitical issues that were going on in the country. And a lot of them had to do with... Um, the government's overreach. Can you explain some of that stuff? Yeah, when you grow up in a country that that's, uh, has a lot of powers like that, and I, I grew up in a country that was pretty much at war, um, but there was a lot of gun control and a lot of things. And I, and I look at California now, and kids who grow up in California these days, all these laws are just going to be normal to them, you know? They're going to understand, they're going to grow up thinking that it's just normal not to be able to buy ammunition. So when I grew up in Ireland, it was very normal not to be able to buy guns, not to be able to buy ammunition. You could get a license for like a twenty-two rifle or a 12-gauge shotgun, but it was like it was a year-long process. And my older brother actually went in to get a license when he was of legal age, and the police officer in the station just said, no, come back next year. He just made that decision right there and then. He said, no, I don't like the look of you, come back next year. But when he came home, he uh, that was just, was just like, yeah, they said no. And it becomes such a normal part of life. You just accept it, you know? So kids growing up in California these days are just going to accept the way things are because basically their parents didn't, you know, fight these issues. I don't mean physically fight. I mean fight them by voting, you know, these, these left-wing politicians that are making decisions on your behalf without asking you. But even if you're not a gun person, you should be concerned about the, the government taking away constitutional rights without asking you. Because America is the greatest country in the world, and it's, it's the best idea, you know, the world has ever had. And it was founded on lessons learned from Europe, basically, and, and all the things that Europe did wrong. But now we're going back down the same road as Europe in a lot of states. And um, like I said, 
regardless of whether you're a gun person or not, you could you should be concerned about the government making decisions because they, today it's gun rights, tomorrow it's Miranda rights. You know what I mean? And free free speech rights. So uh, this this should be very very concerning for every American, not just people who live in states like California or New Jersey. Yeah, I don't. One of the statements that was made by Jenkins, who's a um, he's a politician who's involved in some of this stuff. It says they're going to be calling this data to find out who is buying and why. And and what I don't understand is, you know, we we seem to be so comfortable now with with companies and governments calling data, like collecting our personal information. And Facebook and Instagram, and, you know, out of, out of Silicon Valley, which they're headquartered and operated, are doing that. But we seem to be okay with that. And many institutions. Um, go down this you know rabbit hole of monetizing, utilizing your data, but we've kind of accepted it. It's because you know behind the scenes, if you're technically proficient in owning a social media business, you know the ramifications, uh, the long-term effects, second and third order of what this is going to mean. For you, it means profit, but if you suppress it just enough, you can get it past everybody's uh, first look. You know, so the it's embedded in the user agreement. You scroll, you click, and you're like, I have to accept this in order to even run this app on my phone and to be connected to my friends. So you feel like you have a need, but not realizing what's going on behind closed doors. And it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, day to day, is it going to affect people's lives? More than likely, the majority, absolutely not. But the point is, at, in the Constitution, we have these enable, alienable rights that are... Um, constitutionally bred into us, born at birth, that we're obligated to allow everybody the access to. And so the problem that I have is when a state um, constitutes their own perception or their own judgment of what they think they should give their citizens, um, it really is turning into like a socialism or socialist environment where they're dictating, right? And they're determining your fate. So now, if you're a law-abiding citizen, because the, you know the idea in this, and, and this is the second question for you, the idea in this is that somehow, if I if I requ- uh, require something of you, then if a criminal has to go through that process, they're not more than likely going to follow through with it. They're not going to do it because if they have to show up at a gun store and they know they're going to get checked for ammo, they're not going to buy ammo not understanding that criminals typically don't follow the letter of the law. That's not how they operate, and that's not how they think. Me and you have fought terrorists, but outside of technically fighting terrorists on the battlefield, um, people don't understand, and I'm just saying this as an example for you to understand the perspective, there is 80% of our time is invested in tracking um, and following patterns of life and analyzing information and data, and assessing what these bad guys are doing and doing so you get a broader picture of what these bad guys are capable of well same thing with criminals these criminal organizations are running businesses and they're not just going to gun stores and buying ar-15s they're not going to gun stores and buying ammunition they're doing the complete opposite so my perspective is do instituting these laws you're only hurting the law-abiding citizen from being able to protect themselves or train to protect themselves um, or, or you know, the hunters and everybody else who want to do things. The last thing it says, this is what they wrote literally uh, in justification for Proposition 63. 
It keeps guns and ammo out of the wrong hands while protecting the rights of law-abiding Californians to own guns for self-defense, hunting, and recreation. They wrote in the support. What, what's your take? Yeah, you know, the uh, having, having when, when I lived in Ireland, I didn't see anything wrong with gun control. You know what I mean? I, I, I just accepted that that's how things are. So you take, uh, so there was a war going on, but you couldn't buy a twenty-two rifle or a handgun. And in the meantime, in the meantime um, Gaddafi is shipping shiploads of weapons to the IRA, um, surface-to-air missiles, machine guns, millions of rounds of ammunition, AK-47s, tons of Samtex. So I'm pretty sure the IRA didn't need a twenty-two rifle or a, or a 12-gauge shotgun to, to wage a war against the British, you know? Um but, but that was a mechanism that was put in place. And another example of, of government overreach, a couple of years ago, the uh, so Ireland grew up, you know, in the 70s and the early 80s. The Catholic Church had a, had a firm grip on, on, on what went on in Ireland, but they kind of lost that grip. But uh, there was a referendum, like a vote a couple of years ago on abortion, because abortion was uh, illegal in Ireland. Now, again... Whether you agree with abortion or you're against abortion, this could, should concern you. But the government waged an ad campaign because they wanted abortion to be legalized. So they pumped in millions and millions of euro into an ad campaign on TV and, and media to get abortion passed as a law. And when the vote was to, was uh, was done, the, the people voted and rejected it. They said they didn't want abortion as a law in Ireland. So what the government did was they just had another election. They, they pumped millions of dollar or euro of, of taxpayer money into a huge ad campaign and had another vote until they got the, the result they wanted and they got it passed. And uh, had it been rejected again, they just would have kept doing it over and over and over again. And again, this should, this should concern every citizen because, like I said, this country was set up learning lessons from Europe. You know, let, let's keep learning them. You know, it, it's... Um What's fascinating to me is always with, the, especially with California, is the you know the couple percent. Let's call it the one top one percent of California, which is the wealthy and the powerful politically uh, powerful. They have guns. You know, they the the celebrities, in, including the CEO of Facebook. The CEO of Facebook has a protection detail and team that are armed guards roving around with uh, weapons. Um, they, they're the ones who get, you know, because of their influence and their power and how much they're paying the California government, they're the ones who get the exclusion, right? They, they get the exclusivity to be able to have people with guns in San Francisco, for example. And then the government officials who, you know, work for the state of California. I've talked to guys who are on the governor's detail, literally the state troopers who are armed and full-time committed to protecting the governor, but for some reason, individual rights and the protection of those individuals in their own neighborhoods where violence is rampant. I mean, mur the murder rate in California is the highest in all of the states in, in the United States. And yeah, I get it. It's a larger population, but let's just forget about the larger population and talk about the amount of violence that takes place in California. I mean, every time I'm there, there's, there's an officer getting killed. There's, um, an officer involved shooting, there's murders, there's rapes. And so when you are in that environment and then you're helpless and then you're helpless because of a right uh, of a, you know, a constitutional right that's being impeded, that feels just wrong. That feels really jacked up and that, that doesn't feel right. 
And, uh, you know, I know we talked about um, several of these issues, but it starts with the gun control, right? Because the gun control was the big thing that they wanted to, wanted to stop. And, you know, I'll, I'll repeat this. I've said it before in a podcast, but gun control in California actually started with Ronald Reagan. It started with Ronald Reagan in the 80s when the Black Panther Party, who decided, you know, they were tired of getting beat up by white cops, right? They were tired of getting beat up by white cops, so they they bore arms. They got weapons, and they started patrolling around with their guns. And the, the leader of the Black Panther Party went into Sacramento, went to a government building with a shotgun because he was allowed to be armed. And they disarmed him. They freaked out, and they said, you know what? We're going to regulate it now that you can't be in a certain proximity to government buildings. But it's, it's ironic that the left is the one who's taking arms now when back in the 80s, when you had a Republican governor running the, running the state, regulated, over-regulated guns because of the movement of the left trying to defend themselves. And it's, it's weird because I'm assuming the left stands for um, tyranny, right? They, they stand for oppressive governments and governments um, being having too much power. But it seems like the more power, the more influence, and the less power and less influence that the people have, the more empowered uh, empowered and emboldened they are as a party. And I just don't understand it because, you know, as an independent and I look at the left and right, I think, what has happened to the left? I mean, if it wasn't for weapons and for these people of uh, Afri- African-American people at the time to stand up against racist white cops, which was no doubt an issue dur- during that time, then you wouldn't have the situation in, in balance. And so, I don't know, man, it bums me out because I, I'm, I was born in California. Um, uh, I, was, I, I was actually born at Fort Ord, California, Monterey, so technically not even California, the federal government. Um, but it just bums me out when I see law-abiding citizens like Gina who get oppressed for, for something like owning a gun, man. It just yeah. bugged me out. Yeah. Um, when, you, when, you know, when you came over to America, you joined the Army as a, an immigrant. Mm-hmm. You didn't have your green card. I had a green card. You had had a green a, card. I wasn't a citizen. Yeah. yeah, you had a green card and to, to work in the country. You joined the Army. How long after you were in the military did you get, get uh, citizenship? Yeah, it was about five years, a little over five years. Before I got it, it's a little different now. But um, how, does that, how does that process work? Because that uh, for people who don't understand, because you know there is programs right where you could be, um, you could be a not a citizen of this country and join the military. Yeah, right? you can join with a green card. And and actually, a guy that was in my old special ops unit in Ireland um, asked me how I did it, and I explained it all to him. But he came over. He was married to an American girl, so he wasn't a citizen, but he had a green card. He came over, and in basic training. The 18 X-ray, the special forces people, um, recruiters sat him down and got his background. And by the time he finished um, basic training, he was a U.S. citizen and on his way to the 18 X-ray program, the special forces uh, selection. And he's in special forces now, you know. So it's a lot different now. I had to spend um, like five years in the, in the States before I got my citizenship. But um, it, it's a lot more streamlined now, I think. And yeah. as it should be, if you're willing to serve this country and fight for this country, then you should be made a citizen. I think you know. Yeah, do you, that, I always I always thought that that's like, that should be like a path to citizenship. Yeah. Like if yeah. you want to serve, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I did a post the other day and I was talking about you know how you know when people are born here, obviously they're born as an American citizen, and so they they are privileged with being born 
into not having to sacrifice anything, mm-hmm. right? They're just, mm-hmm. they, they have these inalienable rights that are just given to them. But nobody, there's no requirement mm-hmm. to serve, uh, to sacrifice. And so people just do their own thing. And then a lot of people, you know, talk shit about the country and just alienate um, their group. You know, Antifa is a good, uh, uh, a good example of that, how they've alienated themselves. And so do you think that people who are born into freedom should have to serve as a part? Do you think they should be given the option or do you think it should be like Israel, which uh, you have experience with where they have to serve in some capacity? Yeah. National service, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's Korea does the same thing. Yeah. And, and some of the, some of the European countries do, I know Sweden used to do it. I'm not sure if they still do it or not. You have to do national service for a certain amount of time, you know, and that's because they're such a small country and, and they're, they're right beside Russia and they're afraid of getting invaded, you know? Um, but I, I think service in some capacity, it wouldn't have to be the U S military, but in some capacity, I think it just makes you a better person, you know? Um, growing up in Ireland, you know, your, your opinion of America is very much shaped by TV and probably now the internet, right? Cause when I was a kid, there was no internet, but, um, you're watching TV shows as you grew up and, and you're watching Miami Vice and all that. So, you know, I was of the opinion when I was a kid that you could buy anything you want in America, rocket launchers, machine. That's just not true, you know? And some people like to push that narrative, but it's not true. But I, I remember watching cops one time when I was, uh, in the Irish army. And I think this triggered me wanting to come to America. I saw um, there was a little old lady in Texas and somebody broke into her house and she came out to the front yard and opened fire with a revolver and then unloaded down the street at them, you know, and the cops came. And I was like, man, they're going to arrest her. And uh, they sat her down, they calmed her down, they gave her a drink of water. Uh, they, they talked to her a little bit, asked her what happened. They reloaded her handgun for her, gave it back to her. And they said, we encourage you to defend yourself. We want you to use your gun, but use it in the house. Don't go shooting down the street. And then they left. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I'm going to America. That's awesome, yeah. man. I'm like, I'm going to America. That's great, Yeah, man. yeah. That old lady, she was just trying to defend herself, you know? And I find it very comforting, personally, to be able to carry a handgun. Because I've heard you say it before. I have a lot of respect for police in America. It's a very difficult job. But most of the time, they're there to clean up the mess. By the time they get there, you, you, you've either died or defended yourself in, in some circumstances. So... Um, you, you just, it, it, you owe it to your family to be able to defend them. You yeah. know, I think, you know, ba- based on all your experiences, see if you could articulate for us kind of like from the bad guy's perspective, you know, cause like people don't really understand the complexities of evil, you know, the complexities of terrorism or criminal minded human beings that, you know, have this willingness or to exploit or commit crimes because that's how they're programmed. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always, I always take it back to like riots and you know, the, the 1992 LA riots where, um, you know, 60 plus people were killed. Um, you know, mostly it was like almost half of the, all the damage that was done was done in Koreatown and these Korean businesses, which my, my family had friends that were there, but it's like these people waiting to take advantage. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a natural or man-made disaster, if they're opportunistics, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if they come across an opportunity, they're going to jump on it if they're not already deliberately planning this. And in the realm of, you know, defending yourself against this with all these laws that are created supposedly to protect you and and reduce violence, how does that work for you when you when you understand like all, all the complexities that you've experienced in bad guys? I've obviously never been a police officer, but I, w- I was involved in internal security in Ireland. And, and unlike America, 
in in a lot of European countries, the special ops units are used internally, you know, and America doesn't do that. For domestic things. For domestic stuff, you know. But um, criminals are very like terrorists in a lot of ways. Terrorists will sit back and look for... You know, the lame, the lame gazelle on, on the Serengeti, man, they're looking for an opportunity to hit somebody. And me and you have rolled in, in missions in Baghdad with miniguns on our truck. And a lot of times people won't shoot at you if you have a minigun. Number one, they know you're special ops. And number two, they know you've got the firepower to fight back. So they'll let you they roll. They used to talk about it. Remember, they used to say the dragon's coming. They call it the, 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 the breath of Allah. Yeah, That's yeah. what they call it. You know what I mean? But uh, the, there was an incident uh, a few years ago in, in Afghanistan where... You know, we, we had beards in Afghanistan, but the, the commander came in and he made everybody in third group shave. Uh, I'm not giving away any secrets here. But when they rolled at the gate, the, um, they got fired at more because the, the Taliban thought they were the, the regular army. But they were getting they were getting jacked up by SF guys who turned and, and attacked the ambush and smoked them, you know. And they caught, up, they caught chatter on uh, ICOM and radios that said that, uh, oh, the... the, the the, beard, the bearded ones tricked us and shaved their beards, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of times if you project confidence like that, they, they'll let you go by and um, they, they won't do it. When, when Australia banned guns, I can't remember the date, it was like 10 years ago or maybe, maybe even more. When they banned guns, the, shooting, the number of shootings went down, but the property crime skyrocketed in that country, you know what I mean? Because they knew the criminal element who were like, predators like they knew that people couldn't defend themselves you know um a criminal think to think twice if he's going to a house and he knows there, there's an armed guy in there you know or girl in there that can defend themselves i mean do you do you think you know an armed society is a safe society is that i mean is there a is there an example of that historically of because i remember we, we used to train in arizona back in the day i mean we've been to arizona many times t2i mm-hmm. training and I always remember like going through Scottsdale and seeing dudes on motorcycles with guns on their hips mm-hmm. and going, this place is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember also the way we, you operate in Arizona. It's like, you don't mess with anybody. Mm-hmm. If I'm in Prescott and an old lady cuts me off, I don't cuss at the old lady. She'll shoot me in the freaking face. <laughs> because she'll, she'll, you know, it. in many places in the world, you can, you can get away with a lot because there's no consequence. And so when you live in a society where you know that you know, it's like having the sticker on the door that says "No firearms allowed." Mm. So when the criminal goes up the door, he doesn't go, "Hey, man, we we just can't hit this place. We can't rob this place because it says no guns are allowed." Um, they're not thinking like that, and so these laws are not going to impede the progress of terrorism and violence and you know criminal activity. It's just it's not going to happen. No, it's a false narrative to push an agenda, you know. And I, I think a lot of people know that, but no no politician in this country is going to be. Hey, turn in all your guns right now. You're a criminal. They're just not going to do that, I hope, because it would spiral this, this country into like, bad times. But they're just going to chip away at constitutional rights every time they, they get an opportunity. Trying to get away with it, Trying right? to get away with it and yeah. seeing how far they can push the limit. And a lot of conservatives will move out of states like California, but you, you're giving in. You're giving them that state back. That, that's what they want you to do. They, they want you to move out of states like California and New Jersey, you know, whereas you should be staying there and fighting and voting to, to, to you know, keep these laws. When I was in Ireland, when I was in the security forces, the police in Ireland can stop and search anybody they want at any time they want. There is no uh, uh, probable cause needed or anything like that, you know. Um, a lot of European countries are like that. So you can't do that in the states, right? That that's a right you they can't they can't stop and search you anytime they want. They need probable cause, but that's just one example 
of what's coming here if the, if the government just keep chipping away at constitutional rights. Yeah, I remember the you know the, back in the day before the Hollywood shooting, right? These two losers get jacked up on uh, PCP. They decide to rob a bank. They got AK-47s, body armor, ski mask, and they just go to work. I mean, they injure 16 officers. It might have been 19 officers. They winded up recovering their own officers with a uh, armor truck. And I always talk about it like, I would have commandeered that and ran the dudes over. Mm-hmm. So they, because of that, you know, the police officers had no abilities or capabilities to fight for themselves. Uh, they didn't have the firepower. They used to ride shotguns, and LAPD would, and, and Hollywood in this example, would ride shotguns uh, center mounted. And then they decided, oh, you know, our cops have to go to gun stores to get AR 15s to defend themselves. And our cops are not armed properly, so then they get AR-15s. It's just like reactive nature to everything. And I always think that, you know, somebody who's liberal, right, somebody who who believes in all these laws and is supporting them in votes and believes that guns are a problem, they're always that way until they're the victim of violence. Mm-hmm. They're always that way until they're the victim of uh, a crime, a murder, or some, some, you know, it doesn't even have to be them. It could be their family, their friends, and then all of a sudden they go, well, what is the reason, right? This is the rationale in it. What is the reason that person died? They were robbed for $100 and they were killed. But what was the fighting chance they had? And it's like the only fighting chance they had is to arm themselves in, the, in that situation where they had a chance of defending their life, but now you gave them no chance. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of that, and I'm also afraid of overreach. I'm afraid of this data collection by the Department of Justice in California. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't want a state um, monitoring each bullet that I buy and then investigating me and then getting warrants internally to listen to me and to track my movements because of ammunition that I'm buying. Mm-hmm. That's asinine. That's mm-hmm. insanity. Instead of spending, think about all the resources that they have to, that law enforcement has to work towards and and procure in order to handle the enforcement of these laws when we should be using that on criminals and cartels and murderers and rapists. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's ass backwards to me. It makes, it makes no sense. Yeah, some of the best people I've ever met in America are gun people. Three-gun competitions, sniper matches, long-range engagements, you know, IPSIC, IDPA matches, just good Americans that, that enjoy the sport, you know? Uh, you talk about a mindset. When I, when I operated in Ireland, the reason the military had to escort the police on the border of Northern Ireland because the police had no guns. Right. In the most terrorist ridden country in Europe, the police didn't carry guns, you know. So um, where we where I actually grew up and where um, the Northern Ireland, any 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 insurgency or, or like that always thrives in a place where they can jump back across a border into a safe haven and then come across. So a lot of a lot of uh, IRA, INLA, they, they lived in my hometown. Right. And they jumped across the border, hit targets and jump back across the border. So we patrolled that border. But uh, we we. Our police officers up there had no guns, you know, yeah. and the military had to escort them. And the same thing with, uh, I'm not giving away any secrets here, this is decades ago, but the uh, the same thing with um, when an armored truck would go and get money out of the banks, the, the armored truck drivers had no guns, right? And that's a, that's a prime target for the IRA. So they would need a military escort. So an armored truck would go with a police car and then two Land Rovers with four soldiers in each, and we'd escort them everywhere. Same thing with explosives. When explosives were pulled out, from a, a, a facility and used for um, you know, blasting quarries, we had to do a military escort on, on the explosives so it wouldn't get taken, you know? 
But uh, you just think about along the Northern Ireland border, the police officers have no guns. It's just crazy to me. And that's why the unit I was in acted as a SWAT team for the police because they had no SWAT team. They do now. Everything's changed now. But back then in the 80s and early 90s, they didn't, you know. Yeah, I I think about when you mentioned the border thing, I immediately think about Tijuana, which is only, you know, it's an hour and some change to San Diego. And Tijuana is the murder capital of the world, the murder capital of the world. And, you know, there's a good uh, documentary on Netflix. I think it's called Drugs or something like that, Drug. Um, but it, it shows uh, the processes and the way that cartels operate from the Mexican side in smuggling drugs into the United States. And they follow these guys, and they follow them smuggling drugs into California. And it starts with California, right? We're smuggling these drugs into California. Um, everything revolved, uh, that's revolving around uh, drugs, which is like the nucleus of this problem, is to protect the drugs. So the money, the guns, everything, uh, the murder. And so you're looking at the most violent place in the world that's right across the border from California, that's allowing these criminals, allowing these drugs to come in, and they have the most liberal laws protecting Americans, right, by impeding bad guys with actual policy that works, and they're taking away the empowerment or the power from the people who, who need to defend themselves from these losers in, in, in their own state. And, you know, I don't blame people for abandoning California, but it, it does make me sad that nobody's willing to stand up like, you know, if 63% voted for Proposition 63, if 63% voted for it and enacted the law, where's the other percent? Where's the 37% that that understand what's happening and aren't willing to stand up? And, and if Antifa can put down their video game controllers and and put on their hoods and go LARP on a corner of a, um, a, a city block and protest against what they believe in, which is anti-fascism, uh, then why can't these conservatives stand up and protest? Why is there no billionaire conservatives in California starting a YouTube, a Facebook, an Instagram company that could help you know, stop the suppression of law-abiding citizens who, who might enjoy sports or hunting or defending their lives as a, as a second uh, amendment allows? It, it's bewildering to me, man. And yeah, We could beat a dead horse to death um, talking about it. Um, I wanted to bring up, I actually wanted to read you something um, that happened recently with a, uh, an email that I received. And this guy reached out to me. He's actually a deputy sheriff, and he was in a vehicle accident. And the vehicle basically was, um, he was in his patrol car, right? He was driving and got hit by, I believe, a drunk driver that hit him and totaled his car, spun him around, and his kit went everywhere. And then he had the opportunity, um, he was actually using one of our visor panels. And the visor panel, which if you don't know what that is, basically we designed a visor panel that is Velcro that allows you to put your med kit up on your visor. Because when you want medical equipment, you want it in arm's reach. You know, when me and Kevin were in special operations, we used to take our tourniquets rubber band them to the molly attached to our kits because we wanted something in arm's reach to be able to treat ourselves um, in the event that we started bleeding. You know, that's the whole premise behind this. You are your own first response. You will bleed out before a first responder in the average of 15 minutes in America gets to you. you that's just how it works. And so in your vehicle, 
or in this in this case, his vehicle, he had a visor panel with a tourniquet and med kit. He was able to treat himself after reaching around his patrol car trying to find kit that was jostled everywhere. He was able to reach his kit and then put that kit um, to use to save his life. And that that's impactful for me because that you know that's a testament um, from somebody, a testimonial from somebody that's telling us that things are working. And we know it from our experiences that these kind of standard operating procedures work. Yeah, remember every operations order we ever win, we've, we've done over 100 combat ops together in Baghdad. So every operations order we ever got, well, what did they say for medical? Self-aid, buddy aid first, you know? If me and you are assaulting across the objective and you get shot, the best thing I can do for you is kill that bad guy that shot you. And I know that you're going to treat yourself and I'll get back to you whenever whenever I get done killing the enemy. I'll, I'll make my way back to you. But uh, it was always self-aid buddy at first. How important is uh, med? Uh, how it, It's just as important, if not more important, than uh, the tactical cool stuff, right? I mean, we, we, we used to take med serious, obviously, because we were taking casualties on the battlefield. Um, how important is med to you? Yeah, I, I, I know the military, especially special ops, take it very, very seriously. I'm not sure police officers take it as seriously, you know, because obviously... Um, if a police officer gets in a gunfight, it, it, things have gone horribly wrong, but it, it's not important until you need it, and then it's really important. Yeah, and I, I think that's the problem is, you know, all the things that we talk about with Phil Krause Survival and preparedness is having, uh, you know, the discipline to think about what the worst case potential scenario is and then planning and preparing for that. And by default, by doing so, you just plan and prepare for everything in between. Mm. So if you, if, you know, if you have a med kit and it's to address the worst-case scenario, then when you just cut your finger and you need a Band-Aid, it's there. But if the worst-case scenario happens, it's available. Yeah, I talked to a private pilot there about a week or two ago, and, and I was telling him about the seatback panel with the, all the med kits and the survival kits in it and all that, and he, his eyes lit up, and he was like, wow, that, I need that, because if that plane goes down somewhere, number one, I'm probably injured. Number two, I may be in a survival situation. So I'm flying into Idaho. I could be miles from anywhere, you know? So, um, and then if I if I do want to leave the plane and hike out, I can take that panel and throw it on my back and, and go, you know? So he was super impressed with it. But until I told him about it, he never even thought of that, you know, that scenario where, where he would need that gear. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to kind of, unless you have the operational experience to just, you know, create ideas in your head of what you potentially need unless you've seen the worst case scenario mm-hmm. or you've analyzed the worst case scenario. And so articulating the potential worst case scenarios for us is important because we talk about it and we go, hey, I've seen this because I've been there or, you know, my buddy's been there. Mm-hmm. And if you have this kit, you could be prepared. Yeah, when, when I was in the infantry, I, I, I forced my soldiers to, and I learned this in the Irish Army and Special Operations, we, we, I forced my soldiers to keep everything they would need to do escape and evasion on their, on their body, you know, nothing in your rucksack. So when you get in a gunfight, the first thing you're going to do is seek cover and drop your ruck. So you may or may not make your way back to that ruck. So if you lose that ruck, I've got, um, communications, I got ammo, I got water, I got a survival kit, I got my radio and I got my night vision goggles on my body at all times, just uh, assuming I'm going to lose my ruck at some point. And uh, they, they thought I was crazy initially, but they, they once they understood the, the reason why, and I did the same thing with my SF team when I was a team sergeant. You know? Yeah, we started evolving, taking, you know, because we ha- sometimes we get blown out of our kit. We, sometimes we get injured, we have to remove kit. Sometimes when you, you know, if you were in a situation where you had to break contact, you were going to lose the heaviest piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. And so we started adapting by putting all of our life-critical kit 
uh, light, you know, mission essential kit on our belt. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the reason I'm still a fan of the VTAC belt made by Kyle Lamb because it has a lot of real estate for me to be able to put, you know, med, you know, uh, you know, a robust package of first aid, my pistol, my mags for my carbine for my pistol, a knife, all that good stuff. And you know, when when I think about equipment. Um, there's some cases like when we used to do low vis environment, like I remember people wanting to do R and D and coming up with different concepts and ideas for, Hey, I want a minimalist med pack. You know, I want the smallest med pack, but it's like, you don't want that. You know, I mm-hmm. want an aid bag. You know, mm-hmm. if I get injured, I want an ambulance to show up with guys on it. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily want, you know, a piece of gauze. Um, but, but you want to minimize it to where it's one, you know, based on your operational environment, it doesn't burn you. You know, you don't want the signature of like this overt signature of a Molly bag on my back mm. that tells everybody I'm a Green Beret. So there, there is like a balance. And I think the balance um, on your person versus your mobility pa- platform or your vehicle is completely different. You know, when I look at my mobility platform, my Forerunner, my JK, um, my truck, they all offer different variations in, in capability. If I have the room, I'm going to put a, fuck, a freaking stretcher in the back of my truck. That's because we've seen people blown up and shot, and, and, and we've seen how much blood comes out of a person when they get hit, you know? So we've seen the worst-case scenario, and we think that way, right? We always think worst-case scenario, and it's what's kept us alive, right? Yeah, for, for you, you know, in this um, eventual transition into a civilian, how, you know, it obviously requires discipline, but part of our lives was very based on our operational environment. And so our civilian life was often neglected. You know, we mm-hmm. in Fayetteville, I carry it every day because I know the, <laughs> the streets of Vietnam is like the streets of Iraq. Um, but when you, w- when you transition to something like that, or if you're a civilian and you just don't get it and you're complacent, how do you start off your day by just, you know, staying in the right mindset and then equipping yourself? I mean, is it, is it, a, is it a habit? What is it? I- I don't know. I have a unique perspective because I've been a soldier pretty much since 1985 in two armies. I went through basic training twice and selection and, and the qualification course twice in two different armies, right? So, and I've been in a lot of bad places. So even on an ODA, not the one we were on, but the, the one I was on before that, we had guys doing low vis stuff, you know, in, in really bad areas and they're not carrying a lot of weapons and and I would go up and I would put armor in doors I would fill the back seat full of rocket launchers and and AK-47s and I I just was always very point I always thought about the worst case and I told you when I was in uh, I did some contract work in Somalia and uh, I was there was a guy flying uh, medication that was right after uh, Black Hawk Down right yeah it was 94 it was like I got there a couple of months after Black Hawk Down and that's a whole another podcast but we, I was talking to this guy who worked for a, a UN humanitarian organization and he was flying medications around the country and he wanted me to go with him. I was like, man, that'd be awesome. I'll go. And he's like, but it's a humanitarian flight. You can't have any guns. And I was like, okay, roger that. And I came up the next day with a bag. I could hardly pick it up, you know? I had, And he was like, what's in the bag? And I'm like, don't ask. I had an AK-47. I had like a thousand rounds of ammo with a rocket launcher. I had water, food. Because I was like, I'm not getting, I'm not crashing in, in Somalia with no weapons, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I always, 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 my whole career thought about the worst case scenario. And a lot of us do. And that's what operations orders are for and, and contingency plans, right? So when it happens, you're ready for it. Yeah, I, I, we beat home the pace plan for, for the civilian sector. It's like, you know, if, if you don't have redundant 
uh, versions or backups to what you have, you're always going to, you know, that first initial plan is always going to change in some way. And so remaining adaptable is important. Speaking of uh, uh, remaining adaptable, um, you know, we had talked about on Phil Craft Survival's page this this um, early in the week about the change for Special Operations Command to evolve from a 308 cartridge, which is 7.62 by 51 millimeter, which is typical of uh, most weapon systems that we use, 240 machine guns, you know, um, SASP M110s, all these weapon systems um, are going to get upgraded in special operations to a 6.5 Creedmoor. And, you know, initially putting that out, one, we quoted Brian Litz, who's... uh, you know, he's got a book called Applied Ballistics, is very knowledgeable and spends his entire life studying the science behind external ballistics and terminal ballistics of rounds. Um, super nerd, but could articulate his uh, nerd science very well. And hopefully we have him on the podcast one day. But the cool thing about this 6.5 Creedmoor is that its advantages over 308 are in the science. And one of the, one of the things that we quoted was from a... Um, a WES, which is the weapons, what is it, enhanced employment zone, employment yeah. zone, and it's basically, you know, it's a, it's a, I'm assuming software that could determine the probabilities of hits on targets of a, at a thousand meters, and the six five Creedmoor is double the hit ratio or the hit probability on target, and so. One, when we first said that, people just lost their shit. I mean, people lost their mind. And a lot of that has to do with emotion, and I get it. But they did, they failed to read the post in its entirety. They failed to get the context. And so the first thing was like, well, why would you determine whether or not the uh, the capability of a round is at 1,000 meters over 500 meters? Well, I didn't make the determination. Special Operations Command and the guys on the ground made that determination based on the need. And the need is we need to be able to kill more bad guys at a thousand meters over over uh, the current inventory of what we have, which is three hundred eight. The other uh, beef and issue was uh, the argument that six five and foot pounds of energy is doesn't have as much energy at certain distances. But again, that's irrelevant because it does at specific distances that Special Operations Command is looking for. So again, a mute point. And then you know, lastly, was the fact that people wondered why. Um, if we have 300 win mag, why we would go 300 win mag oh, and, and choose 6.5 over, over potentially 308 when we already have it in the inventory? Well, the reality is the military services don't all have that. In fact, the Marine Corps just adopted the Mark 13. Um, and uh, I remember using the Mark 13 in 05. I had a Mark 13 in 05. Mm-hmm. That's how long U.S. Army Special Operations has been shooting 300 win mags. Mm-hmm. So... Not every service is, has had that along the way. And specifically with the 6.5, we're changing out the barrel. I mean, it's an upper swap on the SAS M110, which is a 308 gas gun. And we're swapping the barrel, which is the convenience of this because it's a part as opposed to the acquisition of an entire new weapon system. So for many reasons, the 6.5 is better. And I know, obviously, you have, you know, with your sniper experience and background, you have an opinion on the 6.5 Creedmoor. What, what, what's your take on this whole thing? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm not an internet guy, so I don't read blogs much, but when, when people second-guess the decision that SOCOM makes, they should know a couple of things. Number one, we have some of the smartest weapons and ammunition guys in the world working on these. Number two, 
we don't make decisions lightly. We test. That's why acquisitions take so long that um, it, you have to test everything because when we field equipment to a grain beret on the ground, it's no fail. It cannot malfunction because people die. So we will test the crap out of everything we do. The whole 6-5 effort came. The, the difference between Army acquisitions and the big Army and SOCOM, Army acquisitions is top-down driven. Pentagon decides soldier needs a new gun. They do all that piece, you know, at, at a very high level with engineers and all that. And the soldier gets what he gets. SOCOM's different. SOCOM acquisitions is bottom-up driven. The 6-5 effort came from an E-7 Green Beret who said, look, the, the, the 308 was fielded in the 1950s. It's an old round. There's better stuff out there. And everybody who shoots 6-5 knows it's, it's, it's a leap. So... When we, when we acquire new systems, we have a couple of obligations. Number one, we have an obligation to the taxpayer. We're not just going to field a new system because we think it's better, but maybe it's not. That's taxpayers' dollars, right? But with going from 308 to 6.5, it's a barrel change. Super easy. Now, SOCOM went with an upper for reasons I'm not going to get into, you know? And then the other thing that people who second-guess decisions should know is you don't know what the operational requirement is. We've got special operation guys in every country in the world and in... in you know, high mountain regions and Arctic regions and jungles, you don't know what our operational requirement is. So you should rest. It should be comforting to know that we do a lot of research. It takes years to field a new system. And moving from a 308 to a 6.5 Creedmoor um, for, for a sniper support weapon for SOCOM makes our guys safer. It doubles your hit probability. And hit probability is is calculated purely by science. It takes the shooter out of the out of it. But we don't make decisions just off that. We will get every we'll get three away at six five two sixty Remingtons. And we'll get a bunch of SF and Rangers and everything. We'll shoot these things for weeks and we'll calculate every hit and how fast you can get back on target because the six five has less recoil. It's more manageable. It's lighter ammunition. Um, and people have said to me, how come it doesn't make sense to me that the three away it's a hundred and seventy five grain bullet, and the six five that we chose is um is a 140 grain bullet i think that we chose um how could it no how could it have more energy on target well because the bc is is so much higher explain and, bc for people it's a know. it's a measurement of how efficiently the bullet flies through the air basically and it's a really good measurement but because it flies so much more efficiently it bleeds off less energy so when it hits at longer ranges it has more um, capability. And again, we tested every round on the market. This is how many years in the making? Uh, I think almost three years we've been working on it. And it, it it's not fielded yet, but it's coming, you know? So um, anybody out there second, you should know that we did a lot of research and this, this really helps our guys and makes our guys safer. <coughs> Some of the points um, that were, that were uh, really stood out to me in the bullet points of 6.5, over 308 in my research, was it doubles the hit probability at 1,000 meters, which is huge, obviously. Double, doubling the hit probability of any cartridge is just a, mm-hmm. a, over another is, a, is leaps and bounds, in, um, especially in, with snipers. 60% increase hit probability at 800 mil, uh, meters, 40% increase in effective range, 30% less wind drift, 30% more energy on target at 1,000 meters, which, you know, one of the beasts that somebody said was like, oh, it's well, it's less energy at 500 meters. Well, I'm not looking at 500 meters. And if you tell me it's less energy at 500 meters, but I'm throwing around, I think it was like 1,300 feet per second, or no, it was 1,300 feet pounds or foot pounds of energy 
at 2,100 feet per second. It's like, really? Do I need even, if I, if I hit a guy at 500 yards with that round, do, am I really debating the 100 feet that I lose versus 308 of foot pound energy at that distance? Yeah, it's not a great indicator of, it's of not. kill probably. I, I've had people tell me a 308 won't kill a person at a mile. Then you run the, the data in a ballistic calculator, it's going at 900 feet per second at a mile or something around there. And that's like a 1911 at the, at the muzzle. At the muzzle. That's going to leave a mark. Yeah, yeah. except except the bullet's sideways now. Yeah. So you just got shot with a, <laughs> a projectile going sideways <laughs> at, at the, the foot pound or the uh, muzzle velocity of a of 45. And it says 30% more energy on targeted 1,000, less recoil, lighter weight ammunition, and barrel is the only thing that changes. Now, the, the less recoil, we had talked about this in discussion, and this is important for people to understand because – People always think about the external ballistics, but mm-hmm. they don't think about internally what's happening to the gun and the effect on the optic and the shooter. Yeah. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, if, you, if you've if you shot 308 a lot, for a, a long time and you get on a 6.5, you can feel, the first time you pull that trigger, you can feel the, the, the less recoil on it. And what that does, it keeps you on target. So I take a shot at a guy and I see impact to the right of him, I can get back on target quickly. Whereas with a 308, I may not be get on as quickly. If I'm not if I'm not in a super steady position, I may come off target, and then I'll have to reacquire the target. So all these incremental improvements make a difference in a gunfight. You know what I mean? I've had people say, "Oh, you know," and it wasn't with the 65, but with other other programs, they'd be like, "Oh, that's an incremental improvement." Well, in a gunfight, we need to give our our guys incremental improvement because it'll help keep them alive. Yeah, that's a lot of information uh, for people to to digest because. It's so beneficial for people to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, when I remember being a sniper, young sniper on uh, your detachment with you, and w- even thinking about the the amount of knowledge that we had had at the time, we didn't have a lot of access to a lot of knowledge. It was mm-hmm. people, it was manuals, but it wasn't a lot of experiences, and there sure ha- was wasn't a, a plethora of information on the internet at the time. Mm-hmm. And we learned as we went. I remember getting into a debate over what grain meant, and I was wrong. Mm. Like, I thought grain meant like the powder yeah, yeah. of the projectile. Yeah, yeah. And then Damon was like, no, no, I don't think that's right. Mm. And, and then it's the weighted bullet. Yeah. It's the weighted mm. bullet. And I'm just like, oh, how? I'm a freaking sniper in yeah. special forces. Yeah. And I don't even know that. Well, I, I ran sniper, you know, I ran sniper school for special forces. And, and when I started there, there was gaps in, in ballistics knowledge and stuff like that. And we, we were through a team effort we were able to fix a lot of those to give guys the ballistics knowledge to know why things are happening exactly and be able to articulate why you know this bullet's better than this and why in this urban environment i want a gas gun as opposed to a bolt gun and stuff like that you know what what are some of the you know having the experience of running um special operations sniper school and then you know you won the international sniper comp and like you're tied into this um you're almost like immersed right into this environment what are some of the leaps that we've taking, taken outside of ammunition and external ballistics? What are some of the leaps that kind of catapulted us to the next level? So I, I went to sniper school in 1988 in, in the Army Ranger Wing in Ireland, you know. And I went to American U.S. Army Special Forces sniper school in 2007. And there wasn't really much of a, an evolution. I mean, it was the same stuff, right? But around... Uh, I went to Todd Hodnett's the first time in 2006 when we were on a team together and um, the ballistic calculator just changed the game over the next, from about 2006, 2007 till about 2012, 
sniper, long-range shooting, not necessarily sniper operations, but long-range shooting changed more in those few years than it did in the 50 years before that because the ballistic calculator had come on. We started reaching externally to people like, you know, Todd Hodnett and Brian Litz and pulling in their expertise to evolve us. You know, you just got to get over it. Some of these civilian shooters will, will destroy you in a comp because they're so good at shooting, you know. And uh, we started leveraging their expertise. And when I worked at sniper school, we actually brought Todd Hodnett in to teach the instructors because he's so knowledgeable. And then we started making his win formula doctrine. Uh, we used ballistic calculators and now uh, you can, when I went to school, an 800 meter shot was a difficult shot, right? Now a, a four inch clay pigeon at a thousand meters is easy. You know, 1500 meters is now the anti-personnel shot, you know, and then beyond that, that I don't want to get into because it's all math and it's all, you can account for everything except wind and wind is difficult to account for. And it takes a lot of training, but I know without getting into it, SOCOM is working on technology to figure it out as well. So like I said, it didn't really evolve that much, but over that short period of time, you know, it, it took a leap. And the ballistic calculator was, which is now integrated into a Kestrel device, which has all the ballistics in it, and it will, will update your ballistics as you move to different density altitude. It, it's just, it, it absolutely is a game changer. And I, I don't use that phrase lightly because people use it all the time, but the ballistic calculator changed everything in the shooting world. That the, the sniper realm, um, when I went to sniper school, we were still sketching, you know what I mean? Now, digital cameras and new communications and pushing live video and all that stuff evolved. That nobody teaches, nobody teaches sketching anymore. So special operations doesn't teach sketching anymore. Because it's a very difficult thing to teach people that have no skill, right? And I'm one of them. I can't draw to save my life, you know? Um, but the uh, th that changed. And then the data book went away, gone. It's now a ballistic calculator that's built into your Kestrel. And the old school guys were losing their mind when we were taking the data book out of out of Special Forces Sniper School, you know, because uh, that was their comfort zone. It's something they use for decades, you know, but it, it's now irrelevant. It, the ballistic calculator gives you all the data you need. And then when you zero your gun and you get your data in Fort Bragg and you move to the mountains of Afghanistan, it'll automatically update all your data because bullets fly differently in the mountains of Afghanistan, obviously, than they do at, at sea level. So it'll update all your data and you, you, you'll hit the, con hit the ground running, you know, which is a, a huge leap in capability. Yeah, and if, for guys and gals who don't know this yet, but um, you know, Accuracy First, which is, can be followed actually online um, on Instagram, it's at Accuracy First, and it's in our Philcraft Survival Profile because we're the first company that in the United States of America that Todd Hodnett has given the opportunity through licensing, obviously, for us to be able to teach the period of instruction of sniper marksmanship and sniper courses, which, you know, the, one of the first ones that we're running is uh, July 20th, which is a basic DMR course, which is designated marksmanship rifle course that is available um, July 20th in Prescott, Arizona, that allows people who haven't had the experiences, who ha you know don't understand internal, external ballistics, who don't understand the relationship between their ammo, their optic, and their gun, to come here, have your gun built out a little bit, understand the zeros, understand external ballistics, some of the basics of, of marksmanship. Now, so what are some of the things that, you know, in this particular course, when, it, when you look at a DMR-type course, for somebody who has no experience, what's important for them to learn to kind of comprehend, to get their, their foot in the door, to be able to go down and become a better hunter or better competitive shooter or a better sniper? Yeah, I, I think it's probably a little intimidating for people who have not shot long range to be like, man, there's so much involved. And there is a lot involved. I always say pistol carbines a skill, long range engagements 
is an art form and you got to get a lot of things right. But in a day, we can bring you to the point where, you know, check your body position, make sure your optics on right and it's level and all that. Get your eye relief and all that thing, all that stuff right. Get you zeroed properly and then show you where to get that. I mean, a ballistic calculator is expensive, but you can get an app online on your phone that's not that expensive. And with a bit of basic knowledge in, in shooting position and recall management and stuff like that, we can get you to the point where you can reach out at longer range. And, and our goal in, in a one-day course is to whet your appetite, you know, and get you to come back for more because it's an extremely satisfying art when you can hit targets at extreme long range and, and, and aim off the target because of wind when you did a calculation in your head and have that bullet blow back onto the target at a thousand meters or whatever. It's extremely satisfying. And it, like I said, it's an art form. You know, I've, being in the being a hunter myself and then talking to hunters, I'm always perplexed by this. It's partly a mindset, partly a deficiency in capability or proficiency, where people think it is unethical to take a shot on big game. Right? Uh, I'm talking elk. I'm talking mule deer. I'm talking moose, even bison, like these large game animals that weigh in excess of hundreds of pounds, to take a shot on them beyond a few hundred meters. And that bewilders me, you know, having one, having a sniper background, I understand what it takes to be proficient with a rifle. I'm not talking about being proficient as a sniper. That's a different art form. The technical skill sets that are involved in becoming a good shooter are not that difficult. Now, when you start talking about distance and correlating that to atmospherics, which include wind, yes, that's an art form, especially when when you're talking about spotting and shooting and, and difficult winds. But when it comes to, like what you said, the application of a ballistic calculator, the implementation of a reticle that's tied into the holds that are in that ballistic calculator, it's very easy for you to shoot a target, for example, with 6.5 Creedmoor out to 1,000 meters all day long with a short amount of training. And so I'm surprised, one, that civilians who shoot, apparently, for a living, they hunt, you, mm-hmm. you got to shoot your rifle, who don't understand those parameters. I mean, I, I respect Steve Ronella, and I'm not talking shit about him because I, I do respect him, but I've seen his hunting shows where, you know, he, he doesn't, to get dialed in, he just shoots a couple of shots at a, a paper target, but he doesn't really understand the, the complete relationship. I've never never seen him hold a Kestrel or a, or, um, under you know, understand the the hold in uh, the ballistic relationship of his reticle versus the distance he's shooting, and that's super important. So when it comes to hunting, I'm comfortable with taking a shot on any big game out to the round becomes transonic, and that's kind of a standard for me in hunting. So a 300 win mag, we're talking 750, 760 uh, meters before it comes transonic. Six five Creedmoor. We're talking in excess, almost a thousand meters before. Yeah, three hundred wind mag too. Three oh eights around seven thirty. Yeah, um, I, I think, that's what I meant. I yeah, said three hundred. Yeah, I, yeah, I meant three hundred eight. Yeah, yeah, I knew what you meant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but you know, I was uh, I was on. I was, uh, I'll just say his first name, Terry's range, range. I think it was last year, and we were shooting, and and there's a couple of. Was Terry the one who did the six five Creedmoor? Yes. Oh wow. Yeah, one of one of the most knowledgeable, Good job, Terry. one of the Good best job. trigger pullers and most knowledgeable kids I've ever seen, you know. And um, he was on my ODA too, luckily. But but he um, he was shooting on the range with that three hundred wind mag. And there was a couple of civilians there, good good dudes, but you know hunters and stuff. And a deer came out at a thousand meters, and they were like, "Oh, you can't hit that!" And Terry dropped it in one shot. Now Terry's an extremely good shooter, you know what I mean? But um, yeah, you know, you, me, 
we, we, we've both got a lot of experience in the military. Nothing, nothing's as hard as anybody, everybody makes it out to be, right? Because if I got through sniper school, then it makes me special, right? But um, you, you can be trained. You can be trained to, to do that stuff, you know? Yeah, I like that, man. I like that, um, you know, for people who are listening, just to get a little confidence, man. One of the biggest things that we face as a um, issue in marketing business-wise is convincing people that it, just because we're special operations guys or we have these backgrounds doesn't mean that we're talking down to you and that it's some something difficult, that you have to be elite or intermediate to get into. You could show up with no skill sets, which is actually beneficial, mm-hmm. with no habits and learn, and it's not that difficult to accomplish and see your accomplishments in a short period of time, and I, and I like that. Um, moving on, um, reading about this um, strengthening tropical storm. This is a two-hour update for the storm, tropical storm Barry, which is bearing down in Louisiana, and it, it could dump 25 inches of flooding rain. And I looked through a cycle of pictures from the rain, the, the torrential downpour they're getting now, but it included people that seemed to be in panic uh, based off the amount of rain they were getting. And if, if you don't know about Louisiana, obviously been devastated before by hurricanes. Thousands of people have been killed there. Uh, but they're expecting Barry's maximum sustained winds that uh, they've increased from 50 to 65 miles an hour. And then the National Hurricane Center is projecting it will become a hurricane by Saturday morning. Now, it's Friday now, and I hope I can get this podcast uploaded and you, you listen to this. But I wanted to talk about this a little bit because natural disasters are just as important in addressing as man-made disasters or catastrophes. And a lot of people don't know what to do in a hurricane. They don't understand what to do. And a lot of things that we think, the, uh, you know, in natural disasters, how to react or how to how to uh, plan for, have to do with sustaining survival over a period of time. And really, to me, it's sustaining comfort. You know, when people go to Walmart and they buy all the you know cereal they could buy to sustain the long haul. They buy beer, they buy milk, they buy bread. Right, that's the first mm-hmm. things that come off the shelves. They're they're really trying to remain comfortable. But what I'm talking about is all the things that you do in advance to prepare for the physical impact of that storm hitting your home. And you know, one of the most important things that I've learned in special operations, when confronted with violence, whether it's a individual bad guy, a unit of bad guys, a natural disaster, is using time and distance um, to, to put between you and the bad situation. So if you live in Louisiana... And you have the opportunity to leave the state, to take your family with all your valued personal belongings and unask the area, get out of the area. That's the first step. That's always the first step that I would recommend is, is break contact and get away. It's such a difficult decision, but you know, that's your homestead. People are tied to it and they're very difficult to leave. I, I got called into a big storm in Ireland one time because our unit had divers and boats. And we had massive flooding and, you know, not, not anything like Katrina, like a small, small scale. But I remember going up to, to houses that were like the whole bottom floor was full of water. And people were upstairs, like especially older people, and they wouldn't leave. We give them food, we give them water, we give them, you know, some stuff. But they refused to leave their house, even though they were completely underwater. You know, it, it, it's, um, I, I get it. I do. It would be very hard for me to leave, but sometimes it's a smart choice. Now, when it when it comes to you know thinking about things that you could do in preparedness for a potential uh, hurricane, right? You know, if they're getting twenty five plus inches, uh, Louisiana is like at or below sea level. There's parts of it that are below sea level. What are some of the things that you think they could do? Just spitballing it 
and coming up with a plan of action, things that they could actually execute as an actionable uh, objective or goal. You know, it, it, it's a default position of mind to, to think about security first, right? Because when resources run out, people will do a lot to feed their, feed their family, to include take your, your shit, right? Um, so I'm, I'm the guy that always thinks about security first and securing my area, you know? Um, you know, I, I think Katrina, a lot of people didn't take it seriously and they got trapped and the, the, the drain on resources for the, the federal government to get in there and, and rescue so many people. So we, we tend to uh, not take these storms seriously until a really bad one hits. And then the next one we take really seriously and nothing happens, right? It, 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 it's, it's not too bad. So if in doubt, just move. Just get out of the area. Go to a friend's house. Worst case scenario, you leave your house for a, for a week or a couple of days, you know. Um, obviously, have, have all your staples, have your generator and all that. And uh, think about your security if, if things get really bad because some, some bad shit went down in, in Katrina when that happened. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people were affected by the exploitation of bad guys that were just taking advantage of every situation that they could. And, you know, I often think about, you know, the human experience and human behavior. And, you know, it's, it's natural to want to um, fight for resources and try to survive, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're, when you're breaking into a, a store and still on a TV, I know, you're not right? really focused yeah. on survival, you're, right? You're just taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, and another thing, we actually been uh, consulted, I've consulted before for people who were, looking at natural disasters. And one of the questions was asked is like, hey, what what do I need to do specifically in my home to ensure that I have a plan of action and escape uh, and evasion from this situation? I said, hey, listen, if you haven't thought about an inflatable raft, then you need to start thinking that. I mean, Katrina, uh, search and rescue were going house to house. And what they were doing was infiltrating via ext- uh, extraction devices to infiltrate them on top of the rooftops to break down into the roof to see if anybody was alive in these flooded areas. And the people that were able to do it were essentially swimming to the top of the roofs, getting on the roofs, and then waiting for help to be extracted. So having an inflatable device, I mean, you could buy on Amazon uh, small inflatable boats that will fit inside of a small container or box that you just keep in your closet. And, you know... I always, I always look at natural disasters and think about them as, you know, the AO, the area of operation, or the specific environment that you live in. You know, if you're, obviously, if you live on the border of Canada, you're not necessarily thinking about the hurricane threat. You're thinking about other considerations like cold weather injury and, and things of that nature. So when you're in some place like, you know, any bordered uh, area in the Gulf of Mexico, the Atlantic, the Pacific where there is the risk of cyclones, um, of hurricanes, of tsunamis, of any natural disaster that involves the water, you have to think and have to prepare for those specific situations. So many people don't want to think that way. They think there's like a, you know, they think, I hate the uh, survival kits where you go online and you go, you Google survival, and it tells you that there's one answer, and it's this bag, and this bag's going to address all your issues. There's always a staple of survival. And that staple of survival needs to be augmented based on the environment that you work in. If you had to put uh, your, your hands on a couple of staples of survival, what's what's essential in your survival kit? Um, yeah, first, like I was just thinking when you were talking there, if you live below sea level, you should probably be able to swim. There was a lot of people when Katrina hit it that, that couldn't swim, you know. But obviously, there, there's a few staples of survival, you know. Uh, fire kit, Um Water, pur- water purification kit because that's going to kill you quickly, you know. Um, 
shelter, food, water, security are the big ones for me, you know. So if you had a if you had to break down a uh, security plan for a specific person, what would you do? What would your security plan be? I like putting you on the spot. Like you that. do, yeah. You do. It's cold. We're doing it cold, man. No rehearsals. Yeah. I, I I always go back to the, the you know patrol base stuff. You know, primary and alternate, primary alternate contingency and emergency, black and gold plan. If I need to exfil this way, if I'm if somebody's coming into my house and I need to get out, I need an exfil in the back. If they're coming in the back, I need an exfil from the front. Right. You go back to the basics. The the basics you learn in the infantry are so solid, and they're so they're proven right through through many many wars to to work. So I, I would I would implement some seven eight patrol based tactics that that are solid, you know. Um, I would I would exfil the the platform if I could, or I'd, I'd secure myself up the stairs. And um, there's ways to secure a stairwell that nobody's getting up there. If you if you have a weapon at the top of that, there's nobody getting up there. Yeah, I I think that's a, a good uh, a good thing to think about because often we don't like to think about. Um, uh, you know, this potential security risk because it's kind of post-disaster. But I like thinking about those things because it's kind of all-inclusive. You're getting mm-hmm. it all at once, man. Mm-hmm. And you better be prepared on the front end of that disaster and the, t- the tail end of that mm-hmm. disaster. So I want to ask you this question because uh, tactically, uh, we want to address all these questions that we get in, in the times in between the Tactical Review podcast. Somebody asked me a question. I'm going to ask you the question and get your feedback on this. Um it's been often asked, and it has to do with mass, mass or active shooters. So active shooters, uh, they take place in about 12 minutes is the average, no longer than 12 minutes. The average response time of police, fire, and rescue is between 15 to infinity. I mean, 15 minutes to, it, depending on where you live, could be hours. So when a mass shooting happens, if you are a concealed carry, uh, if you're c- carrying concealed and you decide to act, and then you decide to combat the active shooter and take it into your own hands. After that's done, so we're talking post-assault, what are the actions that you need to take to ensure that you don't wind up getting killed by the police officers who are showing up? So when it comes to posture, when it comes to tactics, when it comes to communication, what are some things that you could do in order to set yourself up for success? Because we know, you know, if you're a, fresh out of the academy, you just went through an eight to 15 week academy mm-hmm. and you show up on the scene of a stressful situation and you're a guy with a gun who just saved the day, but you're a guy with a gun. That could be problematic, obviously. Yeah, I've thought about this actually. You know, if something happened, how would I react? Because the chances of getting shot by the cop are a whole lot bigger than, than getting shot by the, the bad guy, right? Because he's one shit bag I can get in there and kill him. I'm not worried about that. But coming out, you would need to, to drop your weapon, lay down, be non-threatening. It's funny, when, when I went through SEER school, they were talking about escape and evasion, and they were saying, you know, if you escape from an enemy POW camp and you're, you're E&E and back to friendly forces, the most dangerous time is relinking up with, with friendly forces. Because that guy who, who's um, really scared in rear lines and he's on the front line and you're trying to re-enter his lines, he's going to smoke you fast, right? So that's probably the most dangerous time for, for any kind of escape and evasion. But I would I would drop my weapon. I would Once I secured the bad guy or killed him, I would go to a non-threatening posture, laying on the ground, laid out, and I, I would communicate to the police that I, I'm, I'm friendly and I'm not a threat, you know? Um, it's still pretty dangerous. Um, a difficult, really difficult time because those guys are jacked up. They don't have the combat experience that we have, so they're they're hyped up pretty hard and they're looking for somebody to shoot. Yeah, when, when I when uh, you understand how police officers communicate, they they do so uh, 
uh, through dispatch. So all the information that's pertinent to the officer on the ground is getting communicated through dispatch, including uh, coordinating uh, coordinating information or instructions from other elements. So you have to pay attention to that. So when you're getting that kind of relay of information, um, uh, you need to relay it not just verbally out loud, but potentially to the dispatcher 911 so they can communicate it. Say, hey, I am a guy. I was I just shot the, the bad guy. I'm wearing jeans and a white T-shirt. I, I'm not armed. I put the gun away, but my hands are up and I'm in the vicinity. Even displacing yourself from the actual place where you engage the bad guy is smart. You don't want to be on the target and just, and just trust that the officers are going to figure out the configuration of the situation. Mm-hmm. You need to let them know where the bad guy is. You need to let them know where you're at. And you need to let them know that you're not a threat. Even describing your... Uh, uh, your your uh, demeanor, your disposition, your composition is very important. Hey guys, I want to talk about uh, our, some of our sponsors real quick. Uh, one of our first sponsors is Killcliff.com. Look, Killcliff supports the Navy SEAL Foundation. They're actually official partners with the Navy SEAL Foundation that does a, a lot of great things for um, Navy SEALs, active um, former Navy SEALs, and their families. And that's so important when we advocate for nonprofits that help other people on a business plans that is so important to us. You know, not only is is Killcliff doing great things in the nonprofit space, but they also have a great energy drink. It's naturally flavored. They have the pre-workout which is uh, has more caffeine. They have the sustain which is the the small bit of carbohydrates and electrolytes that you need to get through your workout. And they also have one one of my favorite which is called the Recover that has no sugar, 20 calories, B vitamins and electrolytes. That keeps me fueled all day long. And I, I like the blackberry lemonade. That's one of my favorite uh, flavors from the recover of Killcliff. Look, if you go to killcliff.com and you use the coupon code SURVIVAL15, SURVIVAL15, you could save 15% on your purchase, which is huge for us. Also, in addition to that, uh, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. I'm running right now Triarch Systems' new carbine. Uh, it's a custom carbine that is a short-barreled, uh, rifle, but it has a folding stock and it has the brace, so it makes it an AR pistol. So we're talking a 10-inch gun that's completely capable of being a good truck gun. I run that now, and there's no problems with this gun. One of the big problems I have in the industry is these custom guns that are built to look really great, but they don't function good. I run their 17 Charlie at every pistol course I teach, and I run their Glock 43 inside my waistband right now for concealed carry purposes. So. Check out TriarchSystems.com. That's T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. And use Philcraft, one word, to save 5% on any build at checkout, which is a huge discount, obviously, for a, uh, a fairly expensive build-out. Trust me, Triarch Systems is the best, one of the best gun manufacturers uh, made, but also the fact that they do custom guns and they do them for durability, for reliability, is hugely important. Also, finally, this uh, podcast is sponsored by BlackRifleCoffeeCompany.com. I'm personal friends with Evan, the CEO of Black Rifle Coffee Company. Great company that obviously advocates for veteran nonprofits and does a whole bunch of great things. They just supported the Best Ranger competition. They have great content on all their outlets. If you check out BlackRifleCoffee.com, you could use the the, uh, coupon code PhilCraft20, PhilCraft20, and save 20% on checkout, which is a huge margin. Look, I rock all their swag. I got their their pour over um, breakdown, which includes the 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 element that holds the filter. I even have their tea kettle. All these things, uh, they have everything all inclusive for uh, coffee connoisseurs. 
of uh, great coffee. I do black coffee, no sugar, no cream. That's how I roll. And I use their uh, Chinook is one of my favorites. Um, BlackRifleCoffee.com. Hey, guys, back to the podcast. Hey, so one of the things that was brought up earlier in the week is we talked to our lawyer, uh, Matt, from LRK. LRK is a custom gun company that's here in town in Prescott, Arizona. Great company, doing great things. And he broke down kind of the the new ATF letter that was released on the, the requirements of the law or the interpretation of the law and um, kind of clarified some things. And so one of the things is, you know, you have two versions of a short barrel rifle and an AR pistol. One is it could be a short barrel rifle because of the barrel length, and it could have a fixed stock. That's a short barrel rifle, which is any barrel shorter than four, or in this case, 16 inches would be required by law to have a short barrel tax stamp, which is an SBR tax stamp, which is a short barrel rifle tax stamp. And you have a fixed stock, which means it's not a brace. Now, the loophole, it's a loophole. Let's not pretend it's not. A loophole is the fact that you could have a stock that has a brace on it, which now allows you to retract. Before, you couldn't, you couldn't attach it to the, uh, the tube, the buffer tube. Now you can. So now you can have the ability to adjust the proximity of distance of the buttstock to the upper and lower receiver. And it's a brace, but you could close the brace out and just use it like a regular buttstock. That makes the gun of any barrel length shorter than 16 inches legal. That is considered a pistol. The problem is, is now when you take a gun that's uh, a certain length and you put a pistol grip on the front of it, which is we, we call them pimp grips or broomsticks in the military, um, then that becomes illegal. So you can't have that, but you could have what's called a, like a finger brace um, basically a little bump stop that to allow your hand to grip the gun. And, you know, without going into too much detail, because it does get a little bit more complex than that when you take the gun and you fold it, here's, here's, the, here's the idea. One, nobody runs broomsticks anymore. It's just stupid. I, I, I ran a broomstick in Afghanistan, and it was dumb then. It just got in the way of everything. Imagine trying to take your weapon system and put it on a hood of a car in a gunfight with a broomstick on it. It's going to be all over the place. And so you have to have two points of contact in that situation. You can't use the vehicle as a point of contact, which would be the purpose. If you're hiding behind it and you're using the platform to rush your gun, you would want it to have a good platform instead of moving and sliding around on a broomstick. So we use C-clamps, and in a C-clamp, I never run any kind of uh, plastic uh, piece of equipment on my rail, below my rail, on any weapon system I run. Do you do you do that, Kevin? I don't think you... I have a, I have a short barrel rifle, but um, I run one of them tiny little Magpul finger things, but yeah, I can still... Which are legal with a short barrel. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can still C-clamp it, but I've seen two people in my career shoot their finger off with, a, with an MP5, so I'm super paranoid of letting my, my hand wander too, even though I, I don't think I would ever do it. But I, I have a touch point on that gun every single Good, yeah. time because the barrel's so short. Well, that's the exception, right? The mm-hmm. exception is having something that you can index your hand yeah. to every single time when you grab that mm-hmm. gun. And that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so uh, asking you a few questions. This is uh, the closing of the, the podcast, but I want to ask you a couple things and get your take on some of your favorite kinds of everyday carry. One, what is your everyday carry pistol and holster? Uh, Glock 19 and plug for Mike, I, the the appendix carry holster that you sent me yeah. is the best holster I've ever carried because I was carrying it appendix before to this because a hip holster just prints too much and I was carrying it 
in my belt, but I wouldn't chamber around because I don't want to shoot my junk off, right? So I, but now when it's in a holster, I'll carry it in an appendix holster and I can drive. I, I forget it's there. So that's what I carry. I carry a good Glock 19 because that's what I carry at work. And um, I'm a big fan of, I got like, like six Glocks. I'm a big fan of keeping the same platform for everything I do. I shoot a Glock 34 for a competition, but um, I, I just, Glock is simple. And when a Glock came out for, I didn't like Glock when initially, um, but it, it's a phenomenal, super reliable. That's what SF carry. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I carry Glock 19. So um, with the holster, you prefer the appendix carry over the the uh, hip carry now, right? That's your go-to? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I forget I'm wearing it after a while. I can sit in the car. I can drive, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I really like it. All right. So um, outside of the pistol that you carry, is there anything else everyday carry that you carry like in your mobility platform or your vehicle? I know you've done some work on your rig, which is a Ford F-150, which mm-hmm. is a good truck. Talk about that rig and some of the things that you've recently done to it. Yeah, I just I, I put a platform in the back with a bed and, and some overlanding stuff because of a trip I was going on, you know. But again, went to YouTube, looked at a couple of videos, got some plywood and built out a bed in the back, which which gives you so much flexibility, right? I don't need a hotel anymore. I can just pull in in a Walmart parking lot if I have to and I'm taking a long trip across the country um, or I can camp overnight, you know, open the windows, throw the fan on. But uh, it, it's, it gives you so much flexibility on where you stay. But it, it cost me like a hundred bucks to rig it and to put a bed in the back of that thing and, and, and enough, you know, equipment in there so I can camp for weeks at a time if I need to, you know? Yeah, that's a good setup, man. I always like the, you know, I always like people's idea. I, if somebody asks me, hey, what mobility rig should you have? It's always like, hey, you should have the lightweight version for the family that's comfortable. We're talking forerunners, we're talking Tacomas, we're talking to the, you know, Viet cars, all wheel drive cars are recommended. But everybody should have, to me, a, a um, uh, the uh, capacity and the capability of carrying large weight in a truck. Mm-hmm. A truck will do that because it, it, it has a 110 axle. You have the ability to carry that weight and then the ability to break contact, but it's just the utility of a truck, man. I've, mm. I mean, in special operations, uh, I've had, dude, I've had so many trucks. I've had four diesel trucks when I was on active duty. Uh, all I eventually sold off, the Jeep that I kept, but I'll always have a diesel truck just because... You know, I have the extended range fuel tank, which is 75 gallons, so 110 gallons or 2,000 miles of capability and range. That's huge. Uh, I just recently put the uh, Long Range America, which is the name of the company, Long Range America. In fact, if you if you go to the website, Long Range America, you could check out the different extended range uh, fuel tanks they make. But it's made for uh, gas tanks in, in Australia mm-hmm. because you could be for weeks in the out in the outback in the bush with no gas stations available. Mm. And so you need the extended range. And I got that on my JKU. Summit hooked it up and installed that, which allows me to get 16 additional gallons plus the 22.8 gallons that I get in my JKU. This is the first truck I've ever owned. I had SUVs. Yeah, I remember. This this is the first truck, the first vehicle I ever bought new in my life. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. You you got some love out of it. How many miles you get on that thing? Uh, like 90,000 or something like that. But what, I love it. What I love year the is it? Uh, 14. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice truck, man. Mm-hmm. It suits you. Um, not in a weird way. It's, yeah, I don't know thanks. Why. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, hey, lastly, I want to ask a question from Instagram. We often get questions, and I want to ask you specifically for your expertise on this. It's from at uh, PNW. That's uh, Papa November Whiskey underscore knothead with a K. K-N-O-T head. Um, he asked, do you have any advice for a rural county trying to establish a mass casualty plan to incorporate fire, EMS, and local law enforcement when no such plan has ever 
existed for those involved. Awesome. So literally no plan ever exists. And then they want to establish a mass casualty plan to incorporate all the entities for first response. That's crazy, right? But it, yeah. it's it's people's comfort zone. It's their mentality. But as 18 Bravos, one of our jobs, Mike, was the um, the mass cow plan and the, with the with the deltas, but the base defense plan, right? Yeah, that was awesome. So I've been in I've been in bases, and so have you in Afghanistan, where there's like a shitty base defense plan and you put it together and you, but you got to rehearse it over and over again and you got to rehearse it unprepped, right? So you, you, you put it together, you brief it, you make people brief it back to you to make sure they understand it. And then you rehearse it when they're not ready for it. And then you re cause it's not going to be perfect. You rewrite it again, you rebrief it and you rehearse it again. Cause when shit hits the fan, it's too late. You know what I mean? That's what I would do. I build a plan, rehearse it, adjust it, Rehearse it, adjust it, and rehearse it till you're happy with it, and everybody knows it without looking at a piece of paper when something happens. You know what I mean? It, it's got to be normal, and it's got to be like a battle drill where you automatically just go to it because you know it so well. Man, that you know that makes me want to text the the mayor of Prescott Valley and just uh, I, I want to get that implemented in this area because it's so like I have a degree in crisis management, and part of that degree program was learning about FEMA and the way that the federal government and state governments um, train first response. Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of places that even train first response that don't rehearse it mm -hmm. because they have the protocol, right? It's on digits. They have the standard yeah. operating procedures on a hard drive somewhere. Yeah, we took over, like, I took, my ODA took over a fire base in Afghanistan, and six of us with some Afghans replaced two companies of infantry, right? And... Uh, I got the base defense plan from them, and it was a check-the-box. They'd obviously never rehearsed it. Most of the stuff I knew wouldn't work. They didn't even have ammunition bunkers separated in case one takes a hit. And you know what I mean? There, there's basic stuff that you need to do. But it was very obvious right off the bat that this had never been rehearsed, you know? So I basically threw it in the trash and wrote my own. Yeah, I, I, I you know, the rehearsal aspect is so important. I've been in bases, mm -hmm. too, even as a government contractor, where we weren't really rehearsing things. And so it, it made everybody feel good that there yep. was a plan that existed. Mm -hmm. And then it was disseminated via PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. and so everybody read it. Mm -hmm. But the actions, the physical actions of people's bodies moving and the coordination and communication between people is so important. Yeah. And, and that starts small. You know, you could crawl, walk, run. And the crawl is, like, like Kevin said, the brief back. And then the brief back of the brief back. And then doing a, a, a whiteboard or doing a sand table. And don't overcomplicate it. And you don't overcomplicate it. When I was in selection for SF in Ireland, it was ranger school basically, I remember we were doing planning and the guy said something that I always remembered. He said, a simple plan, thoroughly rehearsed, vigorously executed, has the best chance of success. Yeah, I remember uh, talking to Tim Kennedy about uh, his fighting the the uh, big army, uh, what is it called, our army combatives competition. Mm. And, you know, focusing on one movement that you're good at and mastering mm. it, right? Uh, you, you have 50 different versions or tactics in your toolbox, but if you just master one way uh, of doing it effectively and efficiently, then that's going to be, you're going to be better off for it. Mm -hmm. You know, just keep it simple, stupid is the uh, acronym, which mm -hmm. is obviously kiss, kiss, kiss me, Kevin. <laughs> keep it simple, stupid. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So that's all we got for the podcast, guys. I want to say a big shout out to Summit Jeep Company, our local Jeep company that we do. In fact, my Jeep's there right now. It's getting sized for a skid plate for the uh, underbelly a long range America. Oh, I didn't mention this. If you are listening to this podcast and you're interested in extended fuel tanks, as you should be via at Philcraft Mobility, 
you should go check out their website. And if you if you email them and let you know let them know that uh, about Philcraft, they will give you a discount of one hundred fifty dollars. That's a big, huge discount, and they will actually donate money from the proceeds and profits of of that tank to nonprofits that uh, uh, we stand behind, which is hugely important, obviously. So, um, Summit Jeep Company, Long Range America. Um, uh, there's a gun company that we actually, me and Kevin, we got to go after this. We got to drop off that long gun. I got an Accuracy International gun that I'm dropping off at a buy to Armory. It's A B I D E Armory, which is our local gun shop. Again, if you're interested in buying guns, you don't have to buy guns in your state. You can have it shipped in state and just do a transfer. If you buy from a buy Armory and you uh, go to their um, site, which is, let me just confirm this because this is a live podcast. We don't do stuff pre rehearsed. Abridearmory.com, which is A-B-I-D-E, armory.com, and you email them, you will get a discount on a gun. I'm not sure of the discount because we haven't worked that out, but I know the guy, the owner, good peoples. We do all of our gun transactions through them. Check out abridearmory.com. You ready to go, Kev? We got to go. We got lots of stuff to do. Let's roll. All right. Cool, guys. Till next time. Hey, I appreciate you tuning in to the Tactical uh, review podcast. I just hope you got something out of that. Um, I always learn from Kevin when he's around. And I, I want you guys to understand that tactics are fluid. They are easily shaped. And if anybody impedes that your ability to learn from that, um, walk away. Instructors, tactical instructors, teachers, mentors, it doesn't matter who they are. You should always have an open form of discussion when it comes to tactics and then changing your own to adapt to uh, the current situation, which can be dangerous. So until next time, guys, stay alert. Stay alert. I like that. (laughs) 